These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Welcome, my friends, to a very scary Halloween edition of Coffee with Jeff. Because today is Halloween. Halloween was yesterday! Because yesterday was Halloween, we have a very frightening episode of two real-life murders. So let's get into it. A very special Halloween... It was yesterday! Uh, yes. Edition of Coffee with Jeff. This is where the worst begins. This is where we must stop. For beyond is the work of madness. Death! The nightmare of insane murder and lingering death. Deranged. For many people who are down on their luck, there are times when even one room can be important. To have a place to keep warm and to be protected from the weather. Renting even a single room can make one feel safe. Sometimes, however, that safety can be just an illusion. Our first story is about sisters Catherine and Margaret Flanagan, known as Caddy and Maggie. The pair grew up poor in Ireland, having lived through the horrible potato famine. In 1880, the two widows came to England in search of a better life. Maggie, age 41, and Caddy, 55. Caddy had a 22-year-old son when they arrived in Liverpool and set up a rooming house on Skirving Street to make a living. The ladies have been described as alcoholics of a dubious character. Just what would they do to put food on the table and drinks into their belly? Their dwelling was in the slums of Liverpool, a very depressing place in which whole families lived in one room. There was one toilet to serve the entire street, and the only water came from a solitary fountain. Soon they had four other people living in their home. Thomas Higgins and his six-year-old daughter Mary, and Patrick Jennings with his 14-year-old daughter Margaret. Yet even with those four, they were still extremely poor and found it difficult to get by. Suddenly and unexpectedly, around Christmas time in 1880, Caddy's son John, who was a healthy 22-year-old man, died. At the time, death among the poorest of the poor was common, so it was thought to be no big deal. And Katie had been telling people for a while that he was ailing. But perhaps there was something more to his death than a sudden illness. At this time in England, there were something known as burial societies. They were non-for-profit insurance groups in which members paid small dues to cover funeral service costs upon the death of a loved one. No matter how poor you were, you could be guaranteed a decent funeral and burial. But the thing was, if one could arrange a very inexpensive funeral, it was possible to come up with a small profit. After John's death, he was buried quickly without the slightest hassle or effort, and Katie collected 71 pounds. That money today would be around 6,000 pounds, or about 7,700 U.S. dollars. But could Katie really do something so horrible like kill her own son? In October 1882, a short time after the death of John, Maggie became Margaret Higgins when she married Lodger Thomas Higgins. 
But less than a year later, tragedy happened when Thomas's eight-year-old daughter died after a short illness. Doctors signed a death certificate with no thought of any wrongdoing. To the neighbors of the rooming house, it seemed in bad taste that Katie, not Thomas, quickly collected the burial club payout and headed straight for the nearest tavern. Now, while there might have been a few that were suspicious of something evil taking place at the Skirving Street House, it grew worse when 19-year-old Margaret Jennings passed away. Again, her burial payout was collected very quickly by Catherine. The money from these three deaths netted the sisters around 171 pounds, equivalent to about two years of common wages. This unusually high death rate at the home was soon the talk of the area, and the home was now being called the Skirving Street Death House. The sisters knew it was time to move on. What remained of the household moved out and settled on Latimer Street before moving out again the same year to a cellar on Ascot Street. And oddly, at the same time the money was running out from the previous deaths, the cold, icy hand of death appeared once again. At first, Thomas Higgins began to have severe stomach pains and Maggie stood by his side as he got worse. Soon, he too was breathing no more. A local doctor ruled that the cause of death was dysentery after drinking some bad whiskey. And of course, again, money was collected. But there was one man who wouldn't take the doctor's opinion as fact, and that was Thomas's brother, Patrick. To Patrick, his brother's death was devastating, and he wanted answers. After all, Thomas had been strong and in good health at the time. How could something like this have happened? Beginning his own investigation, he learned of all the other strange deaths that surrounded the sisters. He discovered that Catherine and Margaret had taken out at least five separate insurance policies by five different burial societies on her brother, and that left them with a profit of about a hundred pounds. Patrick persuaded the authorities to look into the deaths, and a post-mortem examination was ordered on Higgins' body. The coroner arrived during Higgins' wake to the surprise of the mourners. An alarmed Catherine ran out the back door, but the coroner's office presented Margaret with the notice that the funeral would have to be delayed for a post-mortem examination. The body was taken away. Traces of arsenic was found in Thomas's body, and it was determined that he had been given small amounts of arsenic over several days. A search of the sister's home found a bottle containing a mysterious white substance. When it was examined, it was found to be an arsenic solution, and traces of the same substance were found in Margaret's pocket. When the police entered a Liverpool pub to arrest the sisters, Catherine, who was still in her funeral attire, ran out the back door. Margaret was arrested. Catherine was able to avoid the police for about a week before she was taken into custody. On October 16, 1883, the sisters were formally charged with the murder of Thomas Higgins. The other bodies, those of John Flanagan, Mary Higgins, and Margaret Jennings, were also exhumed and each one showed evidence of arsenic poisoning. But a conviction hinged on proving that the sisters could actually get a hold of the poison. At first, it was assumed that it came from common rat poison, but that turned out not to be the case, and it was very unlikely that the illiterate sisters could have purchased it from a chemist. The source was soon discovered. It was from common flypaper. By soaking the flypaper in water, a solution identical to that found in the bottle at the sisters' home could be obtained. 
The trial lasted three days. The jury only deliberated for 40 minutes before finding the sisters guilty, and they were sentenced to be hanged. Catherine did all she could to avoid the rope. She turned on her younger sister, putting all the blame on her, even though it is thought that she was the brains of the operation. She also attempted to persuade authorities that she had knowledge of other similar crimes that there was a whole crime ring of at least five other women using the same technique to earn money. She told them that the ring leader of the operation was a Margaret Evans. Of course, her testimony would be in exchange for her being given a lighter sentence. An investigation did conclude that all the women Catherine named were involved in mysterious deaths and did collect money. A Mrs. Stanton, for example, was linked to the insurance policies of at least three deaths. But no arrests were ever made because police had insufficient evidence, other than Catherine's testimony. On March 3, 1884, with heavy snow falling, the sisters were hanged for the horrific and despicable crimes of pure greed. An article in the Evening Post described the events. The women appeared to be resigned to their fate and attentively repeated the responses to the prayers for the dying. On the scaffold being mounted, the pinioning was complete, during which time the women betrayed little or no emotion and stood under the drop with their eyes closed, repeating the prayers. The white caps being adjusted over their pale faces, Bins pulled the lever and the two women fell with the drop over nine feet. There was no movement after their bodies dropped and death appeared to be instantaneous. To this day, Catherine and Margaret Flanagan are known as the Black Widows of Liverpool. There are times in many people's life when they have to depend on others for their health. Doctors, nurses, caregivers, we all assume that they have our best interests at heart. But that person with a smiling face, the one that just handed you a drink, might not be what she seems. And there might be more in that glass than just water. In 1901, a Massachusetts family had been through a number of tragedies. Elderly Alden Davis and his wife both mysteriously died, as well as their married daughters Minnie Gibbs and Geraldine Gordon. It was Minnie's father-in-law that suspected that something wasn't right about the deaths of an entire family, and he began an investigation. Eventually, suspicions fell on Jane, Alden Davis's caretaker. She was born Hondora Kelly on March 31, 1854 in Boston. She was the youngest of four daughters to an extremely poor family of Irish immigrants. She had lost her mother to tuberculosis when she was very young, and her father was an abusive alcoholic who was called Kelly the Crank because of his eccentric ways. There's a story of him sewing his own eyelids shut while working as a tailor and joking about it later. This has led many to believe that insanity ran in the family. Dad would eventually spend his later years in a mental institution. After a failed attempt for the girl's grandmother to raise them, they were put in the care of the Boston Female Asylum for Destitute Girls and eventually were adopted by different families. The five-year-old Hondora was adopted by a family named Topan and her name was changed to Jane. Because of the way the Irish were thought of at the time, her heritage would have been humiliating for the family, so they made up a story of her Italian parents dying at sea, 
and with her thick black hair, olive skin, prominent nose, and big brown eyes, Jane could easily pass for Italian. Her adopted parents' attitude pushed Jane to loathe her real Italian heritage. However, Jane was never an equal at the Topan household and was more like a servant. At school, she was a popular girl but told exaggerated lies about herself. Her father sailed the world and her brother fought at Gettysburg, she would tell her friends. But besides that, she seemed to fit in well and was known as the life of the party. In 1874, Jane's stepmother passed away. Her sister Elizabeth married and her husband moved into the home. Jane's status didn't change. She had no inheritance, social status, husband, or family of her own. And there was no hope for a real profession or even higher education. And although Elizabeth never mistreated Jane like her mother had, Jane developed a bitter hatred and jealousy for her foster sister. Elizabeth had what Jane had dreamed of, a husband and a family of her own. At the age of 33, she had no desire for the few opportunities available for women at the time, things like school teacher, seamstress, and such, but eventually decided to go into nursing. She was admitted to the Cambridge Hospital Nursing School in Boston. The other nurses would remember Jane as an outgoing and cheerful person, and it was there she was given the nickname Jolly Jane. Yet she had a dark side. She would spread gossip of those she didn't like and would implicate those for infractions they had nothing to do with, often causing their dismissal. Jane would celebrate with glee over the innocent students who got discharged. And Jane continued with the fabrications of her life, including telling stories of how she was offered a nursing job by the Tsar of Russia. At Cambridge Hospital, Jolly Jane would take care of the elderly and the very sick. She often had favorite ones and could spend a considerable amount of time alone with them. What no one knew at the time was Jane was involved in secret experiments. The patients were her guinea pigs. She would try different dosages of morphine and atropine to witness the effects, to see what it did on the nervous system. And because she had so much time alone, she could make up fake charts and medicate them to drift in and out of consciousness. Sometimes she would even climb into bed with them. And if she liked a patient, she would give them drugs to make sure that they wouldn't leave. After Amelia Finney was operated on in 1887, Jane gave her medication that caused her to lose consciousness. Jane then climbed into bed with her and began to kiss her all over the face. Whatever Jane was planning on doing next was interrupted by someone and she quickly jumped out of bed before she was caught. No one knows what she would have done if she was left alone with Amelia. Amelia thought it was all a dream and wouldn't realize it was real until years later when reading about Jolly Jane. It is unknown today if she had any sexual interactions with her patients. The hospital administrators became concerned over her obsession with autopsies. Also, she was suspected of stealing but was never caught. Most of the other nurses grew to dislike her, but most of the doctors did like her, so she received glowing recommendations for wider training at the more respectable Massachusetts General Hospital. There, she continued her experiments, but was eventually discharged after she was caught leaving the ward without permission. Again, she's been suspected of killing a number of patients. In 1891, she returned to Cambridge Hospital. 
During her time there, her employers became annoyed with her elaborate lies and petty theft. When she wasn't at the hospital, she spent her time chugging beer, telling lies, and spreading rumors. Her stay there wasn't long as she was suspected of administering opiates recklessly. To this day, it's unknown how many died at the hands of Jolly Jane at Cambridge, but estimates are a dozen or more. And this was only the beginning. She moved into private nursing with excellent recommendations from physicians who gave Jane many magnificent testimonials and referrals. Israel and Lovey Durham were Jane's landlords, and they were her friends as well. But in 1895, Israel died. It seemed to Jane that he had become feeble and fussy and old and cranky and had to go. Two years later, Jane made sure Lovey joined her husband. She used poison on them both. In August of 1899, Jane visited her foster sister Elizabeth at her vacation home at Cape Cod. The hate and jealousy Jane felt over Elizabeth was unleashed as she slowly began to feed her poison. She said later, I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she grasped her life out. At the end of the year, she killed 70-year-old Mary McClure after she was recommended by a doctor to take care of her. In February the following year, she used strychnine to kill an old friend, Myra Connors, because she wanted to take over her position as the dining matron at the theological school. She lied her way into the job, but it was soon realized that she was unqualified and there were also many irregularities and complaints against her. Jane was dismissed by the end of the year. Strangely, it appears she killed no one while she was there. In early 1901, Jane began living with Melvin and Isella Beadle. While there, she poisoned their housekeeper, not to kill her, but to convince the Beatles that she was a drunk so Jane could take over her job, and her plan worked. The Davis family would feel the terror of Jolly Jane in the worst way. There was the dad, Alden, his wife, Maddie, and their two adult daughters, Minnie Gibbs, who was married with a 10-year-old son, and Genevieve Gordon, who was also married. The Davis family owned vacation property, a cottage that Jane used for five summers. When she left the last time, she owed the family $500. Maddie made the mistake of traveling to Cambridge to the Beetle home to collect. Jane offered her a glass of mineral water, which Maddie accepted. The water was laced with morphine. Once she had Maddie under her control, she began playing with her, giving her morphine and then stopping, letting her drift in and out of consciousness. This went on for seven days before Maddie finally died. Once she was dead, Jane offered to take care of the elderly Alden Davis and moved into the house. Genevieve was also there to look after her dad after the death of his wife, but to Jane, she was in the way, so she was poisoned. Jane claimed it was suicide, Genevieve being so distraught after her mother's death. Two weeks later, Alden was dead, and finally it was Minnie's turn. And after Minnie was dead... Jane climbed into the bed with her 10-year-old son. It's unknown if anything sexual happened. After the Alden family was murdered, she returned to her hometown of Lowell. She went there because she was hoping to marry a man, Oramel Brigham. The problem was there were a few people in her way, like her 77-year-old sister Edna, whom Jane killed. But while Jolly Jane was hoping to start a new life with Oramel, a Captain Gibbs, who was the father-in-law of Minnie Gibbs, suspected foul play. He ordered a toxology exam on her body at the Harvard Medical School. It was soon discovered that his daughter-in-law had been poisoned. 
Back in Lowell, Jane was having her own problems. Oramel made it clear that she wasn't wanted as a housekeeper or a wife. She wasn't happy and began poisoning him, just enough to make him real sick and then letting him recover. This was her way of convincing Oramel that he needed her, but he still refused her advances. Next, she threatened to ruin his reputation by claiming that he had gotten her pregnant. Oramel ordered her out of the house, but she took an overdose of morphine herself. In this way, she could stay in the house for a week or so while she recovered. But once she was on her feet, she was again ordered to leave. When she did so, she didn't realize that by now she was being watched by detectives. She was living at the home of friends when she was finally arrested on October 29, 1901. She was charged with the murder of Minnie Gibbs. She would eventually be charged with the murder of the whole Davis family. She pled not guilty. A psychiatric evaluation determined that Jane was insane and had an irresistible sexual impulse to kill. She confessed to 11 murders. The trial only took 8 hours and the jury deliberated for only 20 minutes. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Jane smiled with joy at the verdict, thinking she would spend a few months in a hospital until she could convince them that she was healthy and sane and be set free. William Randolph Hearst had got a hold of her confession that she had given to her lawyers, and it was printed in the New York Journal. In it, Jane admitted that she wanted the panel of psychiatrists to find her insane. Upon convincing them of the lie, she felt very smug in knowing she had outsmarted a panel of experts. She described the exquisite pleasure it gave her to kill her patients, and she marveled at the lack of feeling and remorse she felt while doing these horrible things. In an attempt to show she was not without feelings, Jane claimed that the jilt she received from a lover in her youth seemed to be the root of all her problems. Jane explained, If I had been a married woman, I probably would have not killed all those people. I would have had a husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. In all, she said she killed 31 people. Jolly Jane Topin spent the rest of her life in the Toton Insane Hospital. In 1904, she attempted to explain herself. I do not know the feeling of fear, and I do not know the feeling of remorse, although I understand perfectly what these words mean. I do not seem to be able to realize the awfulness of the things I have done, although I realize what those awful things are. I seem to be incapable of realizing the awfulness of it. Why don't I feel sorry and grieve over it? I don't know. She also was reported to have said, no, I absolutely have no remorse. I never felt sorry for what I have done. Even when I poisoned my dearest friends, as the Davises were, I did not feel any regret afterwards. I have thought it over and I cannot detect the slightest bit of sorrow over what I have done. She died at the hospital on August 17, 1938, at the age of 84. You know, the scary part of this whole thing is there have been people like that, there are people like that right now, and there will be people like that in the future. Look around at the people in your life. How do you know what's going on inside their head? How do you know what's going on inside my head? Do you want to invite me over for dinner? 
How many times after hearing about a crazed killer do we hear the neighbors say, Oh, but he was such a nice guy. Oh yeah, they're always nice guys and gals. Until they aren't. Happy Halloween, everybody. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye.